play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. All right, guys. We are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR. 90.3 FM. The voice of of Beyonce. What is that? (laughs) I wish. (laughs) kidding. I'm just kidding. All right, guys. So we're starting off the show talking about Cuba. Cuba. You know, I try to mix it up a little bit. I just got back from Mexico, okay? Cuba. (laughs) Wait, did you just get back from a vacation? We weren't sure. We didn't know. Have I not mentioned that? Have I not mentioned We have not seen your pictures. I just wanted to make sure that that's where you are. Okay. What was your favorite thing to do in Mexico? Cocktail. How much water did you drink? I drank a lot of water. No, I did not drink any water in Mexico, Stanley. I drank the bottled water, not the filter water. water is better than Flint's water, so. But you know Mm. what? I almost did. I was at the bar and I was like, I did you shower in bottled water? No, no, no. I was like, I went on a cruise. So I was at the bar and I was like, can I have a cup of water? And I was like, oh shoot, I mean a bottle of water. Wait, you were on a cruise. It's not. No, well, you mind. get off the cruise. You said, never mind. Carry on. Anyway, yeah, and then you have to jump over the wall. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the wall that doesn't exist yet. Or does All right. it? I don't I mean, know. There is a fence. Well, on that note, let's talk about Cuba and end the conversation on Mexico because guess who's going to Cuba? Our president. In how long? A few more hours. He will be touching down, and this will mark. And make him the first president to visit the communist-run island in 88 years. And he's scheduled to arrive in Havana for a historic two-day trip. While he is there, he will meet with Cuban President Raul Castro. He will also talk to anti-government activists and attend a baseball game between the Tampa Bay Rays and the Cuban national team. Why? Because baseball is something that Cubans and Americans both have a historic pastime for. Um, one of our favorite pastimes in both countries. Tampa Bay's gonna lose. Yeah, they're gonna lose. <laughs> that's that's your bad. predictions. Yeah. Yes, they're gonna get the like. Yeah, Cuba is like stacked with pitching and hitting. Yeah. Oh boy, they have the best baseball Tampa. players. And it's Sorry, like they Tampa. don't even have a full roster yet. It's spring training, so like they're not even at full strength. It's well, you know, be bad. some of those players may now be able to easily come here, but I know we're gonna get into that later. Yeah, it's gonna segment. walk right over. The, never mind. Go ahead, Selena. All right, so the president, so the president's trip, it actually comes 15 months after he announced the restoration of diplomatic ties between the U.S. and Cuba. I don't know if you guys remember, but it was December 2014 when he started taking these uh, uh, steps to advance the U.S. effort to normalize our relations with Cuba following a 54-year frozen relationship that first began in 1961 when both countries cut ties. Since then, the president has made good on his promise to normalize our relations with Cuba, and he's made tremendous progress in establishing a diplomatic relationship. Last year, he uh, he removed, excuse me, the U.S. removed Cuba from the U.S. terrorism list. We also restored direct phone lines between the two nations, and both countries reopened embassies in the other's capital. More recently, direct mail service has been resumed, and the president was finally able to mail a letter to his pen pal in Cuba. And they might even go out for some Cuban coffee, which would be nice. I wish I was there, but I'm not Sasha and Malia, unfortunately. Um, And... Also, he also uh, the U.S. Um, Postal Service, they actually, so they carried the letters from the U.S. to the island, um, and they used a plane to do that, obviously. Um, other, diplom- other recent developments include um, a new work permit that gives Cuban nationals a chance to earn a salary here in the U.S. That's big. And there has been another um, new rule that encourages Americans to travel to Cuba for person-to-person educational tours. Before... 
you can only go with a group, and you had to prove that it was educational. So I guess that's what Jay-Z and Beyonce did a few years ago when they went to Cuba for their honeymoon. I guess that's how they got clearance. They just said it was educational. Yeah, I don't know. Did. That's how a lot of it people go. all of us. Um, well, <laughs> I mean, there's other ways that people go, usually by flying to Canada and then flying from Canada to Cuba. Or illegally. <laughs> or human trafficking. What? Okay. I hope not. Um, I mean, a lot of people forget, like, tourists from Europe have been going to Cuba for years. Right. And Not Cuba's in, like, awesome. large numbers, but they've been going. Yeah. And so we were talking about baseball, right? Another guideline will actually allow the major league teams to sign Cuban baseball players. So this, subsequently, will have a major impact on major league baseball. So we can look forward to that. However, before we discuss these recent developments between the U.S. and Cuban ties, we actually have a very special guest on the line who will help us delve into our history with Cuba and figure out the origins of our bad blood. We have on the line with us Sebastian Arcos, who is the Associate Director of the Cuban Research Institute at Florida International University. He was also born in Havana. He served one year in prison for attempting to leave Cuba illegally in 1981. Then in 1987, he joined the Cuban Committee for Human Rights, which was the first independent human rights organization in Cuba. Plus, he advised the U.S. Department of State on issues concerning human rights in Cuba between 1998 and 2000. So we got the right guest to talk about this, basically. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Good morning, Sebastian. Good morning, Selena. Thank you again very much for the invitation. It's an honor. Yes, it is an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. I wanted to start off um, talking about, so so like I mentioned, uh, the president is going to Cuba today. Um, while he's there, he's going to do a lot of things. But one thing he's not going to do, he's not going to meet with Forbin, former Cuban president Fidel Castro, who we know established the first communist state in the Western Hemisphere after overthrowing a U.S.-backed dictator in 1959. Could you start off talking more about the Communist Party of Cuba that was established under Castro's regime in brief? Actually, the Communist Party originated in Cuba in the 1920s, and Castro had nothing to do with that Communist Party until he took over uh, the government in 1959. At that time, he essentially co-opted the old Communist Party and took over as the leader of the Communist Party. A few of the old leaders remain. Uh, some of the old leaders were purged, and Fidel Castro uh, essentially controlled the Communist Party and turned it into the uh, not only the dominant, but the only party in Cuba for the last 60 years. Well, guys, if you're just tuning in, we're speaking about U.S.-Cuban relations and our history, and we have on online with us Sebastian Arcos from the Cuban Research Institute at Florida International University. You know, we're speaking about um, Fidel Castro, who has an extremely polarizing legacy. You know, I was reading up on him. On one hand, his regime was successful in reducing illiteracy, stamping out racism, and improving public health care. He also brought electricity to the countryside, provided full employment, and built new schools and medical facilities. But when you think of Castro, most of us just think about how he um, got rid of all opposition newspapers. He jailed thousands of political opponents. He limited the amount of land somebody can own. And he abolished private business. I wanted to ask you, Sebastian, why did he take this this stance? I mean, he was doing so much good. Why did he take this stance? 
Well, uh, one thing had to go necessarily with the other. Uh, the problem here is to understand the personality of Fidel Castro. Uh, he is essentially a man who lived his entire life with one thing in mind, absolute power. And he was willing to do anything he had to do to reach absolute power, and he did. So in 1959, after he toppled that military dictatorship with the support of the majority of the Cuban population, who were much against that particular military dictator, he had two choices. He could go back to the 1940 constitution, Cuban constitution, who was democratic and center-left, or he could take um, the site of the Soviet Union, which guaranteed him absolute power, for the rest of his life. So he obviously decided what would guarantee him that absolute power, his uh, price. So he went with the Soviet Union very early on in, in 1960. He had already sided with the Soviet Union, both economically and politically. And when you side with the Soviet Union, you necessarily have to copy the traditional uh, Communist Party hierarchy and methods of the Soviet Union, which are notoriously repressive. So there was an immediate crackdown on Cuban civil society. Thousands of people were shot. Tens of thousands of people were put in prison, some of them for very long sentences, 25, 30 years. Hundreds of thousands of Cuba left the island. Right now, more than a, Cuban, than a million Cubans live in the United States. There are more Cubans all over the world. And the economy, the Cuban economy, which was, according to all economists, in a period of takeoff in the 1950s, was essentially disassembled and turned into a central command economy under the control of Fidel Castro. If you guys are just tuning in and you want to call in with a question or a comment, you can give us a call at 212-650-6903. Again, that is 212-650-6903. Sebastian, I have a question for you in relation to the um, former dictator that um, Castro was able to overthrow. What was the opposition to this dictator? I know it was U.S. appointed or U.S. supported, but what was their problem with this dictator or this leader? What, what, what was this person doing that was so problematic? Well, the, the first thing that he did was to ignore the 1940 Constitution. Now, you have to understand that the support Castro had to overthrow Batista's dictatorship was precisely because Cubans wanted to go back to the 1940 Constitution, which was, again, a fully democratic, center-left Constitution. When he betrayed that, most of the people who had supported him in the fight against Batista turned around and fought him. There was a guerrilla movement in Cuba from 1960 to 1967, operating on that assumption that Fidel Castro had betrayed the revolution. Actually, there's a whole historic uh, theory in, in, uh, in the books, in, in the academia, that is called the betrayed revolution theory, because uh, most of the people you find here in Miami today that oppose Fidel Castro at some point in the 1950s, fought alongside Fidel Castro against Batista. That was the key issue, the betrayal of the promise to return the 1940 Constitution. 
Guys, if you're just now tuning in and you have a question, <clears throat> excuse me, or a comment about Cuba, its history and communism, um, you can call in now. The phone lines are open. It's two one two six five zero six nine zero three. I understand we do have a call online now. We have Brother Omar who would like to let his voice be heard. Brother Omar, good morning. Good morning, and thank you so much. This is one of my favorite subjects. First of all, I remember Fidel. Uh, Viva, Viva Cuba, Viva Fidel Castro. I remember him. He was one of my mentors in my youth. I remember when he met with El uh, Hodge Malik Shabazz, better known as Malcolm X, with that famous meeting that he had at the Teresa Hotel. Also, when, whenever Fidel came to Harlem, he always went to the Abyssinia Baptist Church, uh, Reverend Powell's old church, uh, by uh, Reverend Butts. And I remember speeches, I still have the speeches, when he said if it wasn't for the brothers and the prayers of the brothers and sisters in Harlem, he said I would have been killed long ago. So many of the American presidents and, and have been trying to kill me. And it's because of, the pres- because of the presence of the brothers and sisters in Harlem that I'm still alive. And I want the brother, if he might, talk about uh, Fidel and his love for the black community here in Harlem and uh, in the diaspora. And when uh, Fidel was in power, how he uh, was sent for freedom fighters uh, to uh, South Africa in Zimbabwe and fought with the troops of Nelson Mandela. And I quote the great Fidel Castro when he said, it was Cuban blood. Uh, brothers and our brothers and sisters, we died for the brothers and sisters in Africa. That we're revolutionaries. How Fidel has some of the most uh, sought-after doctors in the world. How he, uh, the Cuban people, are uh, their, their longevity and how they have free education. So I want the brothers to interject, if he might, if he has any knowledge about that. And once again. Uh, uh, long live Cuba. I hope uh, before I make my transition, this is one of the places I want to go to before it's turned into a Disneyland. Thank you so much for your time. Viva la Cuba. Sebastian, can you respond to that? That was a great question about how Fidel Castro had a love and affinity for the black community and people right here in Harlem where we're based. Uh, yes, well, that was a long question. Uh, Fidel Castro is unquestionably one of the brightest political minds that we've had in the Western Hemisphere. And he was smart enough to understand uh, that he needed to cultivate the traditional opposition to the traditional uh, power brokers in the United States because his intention was to make an enemy of the United States. Obviously, when you do that, and he did travel to Harlem in 1959 very early on, and he did cultivate the African-American community intensively. What is ironic is that in Cuba, where more than 50% of the population is of African descent, Fidel Castro maintained a pristine white political leadership that still remains in power. All you have to do is go to the Cuban uh, Communist Party and check out the Politburo of the uh, Cuban Communist Party, and you will see that 99.9% of the members are white in a country where more than 50% of the population is black. It is indeed true that he intervened in Africa and helped, in a way, with the collapse of the racist government in South Africa, 
you have to keep in mind that Fidel Castro was fighting the Cold War at the time, and he intervened in Africa on behalf of the Soviet Union, not on behalf of the African people. It happened to be that his defeat of the South African forces in Namibia led and contributed to the collapse of the white racist government in South Africa. But that uh, goes to Mandela and his followers, not to Fidel Castro. Keep in mind, he was fighting the Cold War. He was not fighting for the Africans. Thank you so much for that, Sebastian. And we appreciate your comment and calling in, Brother Omar, as always. Again, guys, if you do want to call in, the number is 212-650-6903. We are going to go on a quick break. But when we come back, we will continue the conversation about um, the history of of U.S. and Cuba ties, the history of just communism in Cuba, and then we'll talk about the recent progress by the Obama administration. Stay tuned. We was OD like DOC, remember that? My TOC was quite OD, ID my facts. Now POV of you and me. Brenda, 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 Brenda. I be going to the <laughs> store, eating fried chicken and rice. Listen, Yesterday I had brunch. Had waffles. Chicken and waffles is nice. And some weird, weird hot sauce. Yeah, right? That was like, it's like the weirdest hot sauce. Like chewy hot sauce, but it was good. It was good. It was strange, though. We'll talk about this later. Yes, yes. Yes. Right. All right, guys. So we're back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, where we're having a great conversation about U.S. and Cuban relations. Again, our president will be touching down in Cuba in a few more hours. Um, and we're also talking about uh, the, the history of Cuba, right? The Communist Party. Fidel Castro and we have a great guest on the line who is sharing in that conversation with us his name is Sebastian Arcos and he is the associate director of the Cuban Research Institute at Florida International University now before we went on break we had a caller brother Omar who talked about how Fidel Castro um, had an affinity for the black community and um, specifically um, was here in Harlem uh, where he spoke at the Abyssinian um, Baptist Church, which is huge, right? Alyssa, did you want to chime in on that? Yeah, and I know our guest already touched on this, but a lot of what, you know, th- so well, first I wanted to go back to something that Stanley mentioned at the beginning, that a lot of those good things came at a cost. So, yes, there was uh, health care and education and other things, but they came at a cost of human rights. And specifically to respond to Brother Omar in the second half of that, which is also that Castro coming here also came at a cost, which is Castro came here and he garnered support from the black community. But when he went back to Cuba, you know, there was extremely racial undertones going on in Cuba and people who were darker skinned in Cuba suffered at some of the worst human rights abuses compared to people that were lighter skinned. So it to me, it's like almost like a dog and pony show that you come to America and you garner the support of the African-American community to further your agenda. But at the same time, you're treating darker skinned people in your own country. They're getting the shortest end of the stick. So I was hoping that our guests could address that a little more in detail before we move on to talk about the next part of this conversation. Absolutely, and I think you got it exactly right. Uh, it's important to make the difference between what's political propaganda and what's reality. Uh, and Fidel Castro always sold himself as a sort of a uh, uh, Robin Hood of the poor and downtrodden, and particularly for foreign um, uh, countries, foreign public opinion. But you have to look at the realities of what happened in Cuba. And I already mentioned the fact, easily proved, that he kept a complete white leadership in a country where the majority of the population has African roots. There are many uh, black Cubans 
who today, after having been raised in Castro's Cuba, claim that these, his regime is more racist in many subtle ways than many other uh, previous regimes during the Republican times in Cuba. But <clears throat> it's important also to move to the other topic, the topic of the prices that you pay or that you're willing to pay to obtain certain guarantees from your government, specifically in the health and education sector. Let's assume for a moment that health and education in Cuba were perfect after Fidel Castro came to power and continue to be perfect today, which is not the case. But let's assume for a moment, are you, as a free, independent human being, willing to give away all of your political and economic freedoms just to get free health care and education? Are you willing to give a pass to the white, racist African regime in, in South Africa if they had provided free health and education to the black population in South <clears throat> Africa? Would you be willing to give that credit to Adolf Hitler in Germany if he had provided free health care and education to all Germans? Sebastian, you raise a great point and, um, and a great question. And I just wanted to point out, and, and, uh, and you can delve into this. So Fidel Castro also abolished legalized discrimination under his regime and is noted for stamping out racism. Um, was the racism going on at that time a sign of the times, or did he implement some, some laws that, that effectively hurt Afro-Latinos in the country? No, racism was officially banned from Cuba. You could not speak of racism in Cuba uh, because you will be committing a crime, essentially. You could not exercise racism in Cuba because you will be committing a crime. So in that sense, he essentially stamped out racism. That doesn't mean, however, that racism was effectively abolished. It was not. And when you look at the political leadership in the Communist Party, you see it there. And I'm going to give you a more recent example. There's been a revival of public, of, I'm sorry, private businesses in Cuba in the last three years, uh, created by Raul Castro, who made an opening. About half a million Cubans are now working independently from the state. When you look at that half a million Cubans, you see that 90% of them are white, not black. How come in a country where half of the population is of African descent, you have a majority of white people controlling businesses, private businesses in Cuba. Again, there are more subtle ways to see racism in Cuba today than before. You have to consider to remember that you're dealing with a very smart man who was always keen at manipulating public opinion. So he creates one image on his trip, on his speeches, but he maintains a different reality in the country. All right. Um, on that note, we do have another call on the line. We have Carl who would like to let his voice be heard. Carl, go ahead. Yes. Good, good afternoon, gang. Good afternoon, Sebastian. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, that was a pretty good deduction. You know, it gives me a reason to do a little more research on the subject. My, my, my basic synopsis on it is that uh, 
racism didn't begin <clears throat> didn't begin with uh, Castro, and it, you know, it was a long time ago. With, you know, oh, you can go no, back to Christopher, right? You know, go, you can go back as far as Christopher Columbus stuff. So he might have been, you know, coming through something that you know he didn't invent. However, that was a great, great analysis of yours. My, my my position on is that you know throughout history, I noticed even with uh, the David and Goliath story, it's always you know it seems to always been. The, he was a hero. These these figures was heroes at one time, and then all of a sudden, th- their own people seemed to uh, wanted to overthrow them. Throughout history, you can go back as far as Stalin, uh, uh, Genghis Khan. Uh, you mentioned Hitler thing. You know, you, you know, it always seemed to have been this thing. But my basic snapshot of it seems as though when you come from an extremist uh, uh, disposition as far as dealing with uh, human uh, people are concerned. It seems that it almost takes another extremity to kind of balance it out, and, and so I think that it's it's been a process in between with with um, with well, Castro, and right now it's a unfinished product. But um, my question to you is like, uh, as far as Che Guevara, do you figure that he was more of a uh, more of a, a, a conducive towards blacks? And Africa, the Congo's um, freedom fighter. Uh, yes, well, Che Guevara is, is a is a fascinating figure in in this uh, history. Che Guevara was a convinced communist, unlike Fidel Castro, who was not. Uh, che Guevara believed in the uh, dogma of communism to the point that he was willing to sacrifice everything on that behalf. Fidel Castro was never willing to do that. He was always a political calculator, uh, not a believer like uh, Guevara. That makes uh, Guevara's figure so attractive so to many people, because he was consistent when he believes. He believed that a communist leader should be poor like the people, and he lived a poor life in Cuba. I mean, uh, modest life in Cuba. He believed that he, any uh, uh, communist should be willing to sacrifice his own life in order to bring freedom to other people. So he went to Africa, to Congo, and fought there. He failed. He went back to Cuba and then went to Bolivia and fought in Bolivia for that and was finally killed. Fidel Castro, keep in mind, remained in Cuba all this time. That's what makes Guevara's figure so attractive. He was uh, a man who had certain beliefs, and he followed those beliefs. However, that could be a description for Osama bin Laden, too, who believed in his religion and believed that it was his duty to kill innocent Americans in order to achieve his goal. So we have to be very careful with people like Guevara, because they are very, very dangerous. However, when you compare him with Fidel, you see the clear difference between someone who was a believer and someone who was not, who was just an opportunist. 
Guys, we are back. I mean, well, we've clearly been back, but we're talking to Sebastian Arcos about Cuba. Great conversation. I do want to switch gears a little bit because we got a great history lesson on communism, uh, the Communist Party under Castro and what he really did under his regime. Um, I wanted to switch gears because, again, President Obama is landing there soon. And um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, uh, there are a lot of new work rules in place, travel rules in place, um, and also things in place that will affect Cubans and Cuban baseball players. Why are these uh, measures so important, Sebastian? And what type of impact will they have on Americans, Cubans, and Major League Baseball? Well, you mentioned a long list of of, uh, changes that have occurred in the last 15 months since President Obama uh, announced uh, his uh, change in uh, U.S.-Cuba policy. And it's important to highlight the fact that all these changes have occurred from the United States and not from Cuba. Cuba has not responded the United States moves in any way. And many of the critics of the president argue that the problem with this policy is not its principle, which is correct. We need to talk to our enemies. We need to deal with our differences. We need to engage our enemies in conversation and dialogue. That is all good. The problem is that we need to expect something from our enemies in this dialogue. And so far, the United States has moved significantly in changing its old policy of isolation and turn it into a policy of engagement with the purpose of reaching out to the Cuban population and empowering the Cuban population, providing more access to Internet, providing more access to hard cash so they can develop their private businesses independently from the government. But none of that can work if the government in Cuba maintains the current level of control of the economy. They control 90% of the economy. They have a monopoly of import, export, banking, and finances. So every dollar that goes into the island has to go first through the government before it reaches, if it ever reaches, the population. So that's a dilemma that President Obama has. Right. So switching gears a little bit, I have a question, and I don't know if this is something that you can answer, Sebastian, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway and put it out to the panel as well. Um, so something, you know, bringing it back to the U.S. election, of course, because everything that we're thinking about now, uh, we relate back to this election and how crazy it's been. Um, two, I mean, one of them has since dropped out, but two of the biggest front runners of the Republican uh, race are both of Cuban descent, both uh, first generation Americans who are very, very conservative, very pro-capitalist, anti-communist, whose parents are, um, from what's been written, um, very anti-Castro. Are they, so with with Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, do you think that they are an anomaly, that this is, um, you know, as, as a First generation Cuban American, both of them, right? They're and they're both very different people from very different parts of the country with very different religious backgrounds as well, but both very conservative. Is this something that we see as an effect um, with Cuban Americans in the United States um, as an effect of Castro's regime that we have people who grew up in that or who had raised kids in the United States who were raised to be very pro-capitalist, anti-communist? I think uh, both um, Rubio and Cruz are uh, examples of this uh, 
uh, first-generation Cuban-Americans, uh, people who were born in this country of uh, uh, Cuban parents who immigrated here as exiles in the, in the uh, first waves of immigration out of Cuba. And they, they are the proof of the truth of the melting pot. They have become Americans in many ways. Uh, they speak Spanish, but they are true-blooded Americans. And, yes, they are conservatives. Uh, the Cuban-American community is a, an exception in the overall Latin community in the United States because they tend to be more conservative. When you look at the background, you understand why they escaped a communist regime, whereas other Latin American um, um, immigrants into the United States usually escape uh, oligarchic uh, right-wing military dictatorships. So that explains the background, and that explains why they joined different parties in this fight. But they are true Americans. They represent American um, ideals. And in that sense, they are opposed to many of the things that President Obama is doing, but they are not opposed to the principle that it is important to talk to your enemies and to reach out to your enemies and engage your enemies. I think the big mistake that many made in this country is that uh, those who supported the old policy supported a policy of all stick and no carrot. And many believe that those who support this new policy are supporting exactly the opposite, a policy that is all carrot and not stick. And it is important to tack or at least to try to achieve a middle ground in foreign policy because things are never simple in foreign policy. I think that's a great point. Uh, you know, and actually, um, I want to ask a, a question also about the uh, the politics, sort of, but I just wanted to make a comment before I do it, which is, I think it's important for some of our listeners and just for us in general as Americans to note that there is a difference between social democracy and uh, democratic, you know, left-leaning uh, policies like Bernie Sanders proposes and a command economy uh, like you see in communism. However, at, you know, as towards Jackie's point about Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and some of the other politics, sometimes that gets lost and they try and draw this connection between, you know, Bernie Sanders wants to have, um, you know, health care for all uh, that's based on a tax the rich system and uh, when the government just takes over the entire central economy and those are different things and I think that we should note that for the listeners but that being noted there has been a lot of blowback um, about this trip and about the opening up of relations with Cuba on both the left and on the right um, and a lot of that comes from the fact that the president will not be issuing an ultimatum to Mr. Castro regarding human rights abuses now I almost see this as a little bit hypocritical in a way because when Nixon went to China, um, which was also a communist country um, and still is a communist country, there was some blowback. But Nixon didn't go there issuing ultimatums about human rights either. So I was just hoping that you could maybe talk about for a second the parallels between the president's trip to Cuba um, and between Nixon's trip to China uh, back during that time and whether or not these criticisms of the president and him not addressing the human rights issue directly are really warranted or whether that's more just political policy. You have a, a, an excellent question. And foreign policy, it's a delicate balance between what you want to achieve and what is possible on the ground. You cannot waltz into a country and 
give lectures to that country's uh, leadership on what they ought or what not to do. It is more a question of pointing to the United States and uh, the United Nations and the UN Human Rights Commission as an example to follow, as an example of success of an open society. The president has a huge challenge in Cuba because obviously Cuba is a repressive state with no political and economic rights. But he cannot just go there and finger Phil, uh, Raul Castro and say, you have to open up the society tomorrow. He has to walk a very thin line. He has to show respect for the nation, not just the government, the nation. And considering the turbulent relationship between the two nations before, it is particularly important that the president of the United States doesn't seem to be dictating what Cubans ought to do. And I think everybody agrees that the president's plan of essentially reminding Cubans that their destiny, their future, is in their own hands. And that's what's more important about the trip. Of course, human rights are huge because they represent a significant part of the agenda of foreign policy for the United States everywhere in the world. So the president must touch on the issue of human rights and make very clear that human rights progress is important to continue the relationship with the United States. But there's a big difference between suggesting and showing with example and dictating. And that's the fine line the president has to walk there. Um, you know, we have to wrap up this conversation, Sebastian, but before we do, I wanted to mention that Obama said that he believes there will eventually be congressional support to uplift the embargo against Cuba and that the next president of the United States, whether they're Democrat or Republican, will be able to do so. Do you agree with the president's prediction that the embargo will be uplifted in the near future? Uh, probably not. I am afraid um, the embargo is codified into law by Congress. Only Congress can change that. And right now, the support for the policy is strong in Congress. The president has to show progress in Cuba, and that's part of his challenge. The Cubans have to give something in return to convince Congress that it's a good idea to eliminate whatever is left of the policy. Keep in mind, the president has carved the embargo out, uh, maybe 40% of it remains. Uh, but that part that remains is key because it grants access to Cuba to international uh, financial institutions, to U.S. credit, and to U.S. direct investment, foreign investment, which are fundamental for the development of a country like Cuba, only 35 uh, minutes away from the United States by plane. All right, and thank you so much again, Sebastian. We appreciate the comments and commentary and expertise that you provided us here today with on Cuba. We do have to bring the conversation to a close. Um, and I want to, before we do, um, do we still have Sebastian online? I want to give him a chance to just tell everyone how he can get in contact with him and also his organization. Absolutely. We are located at Florida International University. It's the public university in Miami. Our website is www. C-R-I, that's Cuban Research Institute, dot F-I-U, that's Florida International University, dot E-D-U. And we have a full website uh, providing information of all kinds, links of all kinds, history, uh, 
uh, news, um, commentary, academic papers. Uh, the longest running, by the way, the longest running poll on Cuban Americans anywhere in the world, 20 years uh, ongoing. It's a huge source of information for anybody who is willing to be well informed on Cuba. We have the largest group of faculty members working on Cuba anywhere in the United States, more than 50. Um, we are the resource for Cuban and Cuban American studies in the United States. Wow. Thank you again, Sebastian. We appreciate that. And before we close out, I want to say this. Even though some congressional members think it's a bad idea to uplift the embargo with Cuba, I mean, that's ridiculous at this point. For the last 54 years, even more than that, we have isolated Cuba. And you know what's been happening? More human rights abuse and and, 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 and no interaction with this country. We do not need to isolate and ostracize Cuba. What we need to do is aggressively engage with them. Why why not lead by example? Why not start doing business with Cuba? Why not invest in the people and invest businesses in there and show them how to treat workers? Show them how to treat people who are, are who are who have some political dissent or opposition to the government. Show them how to uh, maintain a rally and let other people's voices be heard. We shouldn't be isolating and ostracizing them. It's leading to nothing. And it also makes sense for us to be able to sell. Uh, sell and do business with Cuba and to work with the Cuban government to show them best practices. I also wanted to mention Cuba invests so much in their medicine and their medical care. They ha actually have um, ways to treat and prevent lung cancer. We're not benefiting from that because we refuse to have ties and diplomatic relations with this country which invests so much not only in medicine and in education but in health care. And I just wanted to say like uh, Alyssa brought up the hypocrisy of the U.S. It's also very hypocritical of the U.S. to damn and condemn uh, Cuba for their human rights abuses when we have the, basically the same thing going on. We, at Guantanamo Bay alone, there is no due process. We are holding people there, whether they were convicted, without even putting them on trial. That is abuse of their human rights. That goes against our Constitution and our principles. We aren't supposed to be doing that. How dare we tell Cuba what to do when we can't even lead by example like that? We have police brutality here. We have institutional racism here. We don't even have access to free health care and education. We don't care about those human rights for our people here in America. America, uh, but Cuba does. I think we need to learn some lessons from Cuba, and Cuba obviously can learn some lessons from us, but it goes hand in hand. And that's why we need to continue to have diplomatic relations with this country of Cuba. These are two great countries, and we need to work together. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're coming back with the News Roundup. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> 